not fear. But hey, who knows? If it uh, happens to move on, right? But I'm going to try to get you guys out here early. I know you guys got a lot of things to do as well, but uh, first and foremost, we want to focus on God's Word. Amen. Thank you for being here and joining us this morning, <clears throat> our time of worship, our time of singing and praising, and also in our time of being obedient to God's Word. I'm going to um, just kind of recap a little bit of what we talked about last week, if you remember, for those of you that were here and listened online. We were talking about the attitude of prayer, and when we talked about the attitude of prayer, we had, of course, the men in mind. And I mentioned to you that there's a place of prayer, and when Paul says in verse 8, I then I desire then that in every place, I mentioned to you that that is basically when he says in every place, and he's sh- we showed it, and he showed it to us in four different places, we saw that that meant in the church or in the context of the gathering of the saints coming together. And he says that I, I, I desire then in every place that everyone pray. Prayer must have been an issue. Because that was the first thing Paul says in, uh, in, in, um, when he's talking about it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says in verse 1, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. That was the first thing he said. The second thing he says, I want you to do this. I want every man to pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We went over that. The people of prayer that should be praying in, in the context of the church are the men of the church, that men should pray. The posture of prayer is lifting holy hands, not necessarily lifting your hands. I mean, you can do that. There was the various types of ways shown in the Old Testament that people prayed either on their knees. They prayed uh, either flat on their face. Some uh, some prayed sitting down. Some prayed uh, laying on their backs. They prayed in various, there was various postures and very di- different types of ways of of praying. So to say that you have to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed, first and foremost, that's not even a biblical concept. The Bible never tells us to close our eyes and bow our heads. But the, what the Bible does is that we should say, what the Bible says is that we should be praying consistently. Pray without ceasing is what Paul says. So it's difficult to pray uh, with your eyes closed and your head bowed and uh, lifting your hands cont- continuously without ceasing. So there's this attitude of prayer, and mainly the most important posture of prayer is that our hearts are bowed before the Lord. When he's talking about holy hands on our activity and what we do. And we went through that quite a bit last week. And also the proper attitude of prayer without anger or quarreling. Now, Paul must have gotten some word from Timothy or somebody else that, you know, <laughs> Paul, it just, it's, it's, it behooves me on how people do this, how they come to church with this angry heart, with this angry quarreling, with this willingness to want to be able to cause dissension within the church or within themselves or whatever the case may be. And they're, and they're praying in public, and it seems like that, that should not be. And Paul says right off the top, he says, don't do it. Don't be praying with anger or quarreling within your heart. So these are some of the, and we went over these last week, these are the attitudes of prayer. And then he continues on in the rest of 1 Timothy verse 9, he goes on to say, likewise, also women should adorn themselves, uh, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of scripture. As we dive right in, looking at the uh, the behavior of the church, as we've been going over the conduct of, of the individual, of the person that comes to worship, and the things that we should do. And as Paul is describing to this pastor on how he should conduct himself and how the church ought to conduct themselves, Lord, these are, these are the first two things, three things that Paul focuses on. 
So we must be aware that there must have been a problem in that church uh, with the uh, doctrinal teaching that was going on that was uh, straying people from the true doctrine. And so, Lord, because of that, uh, all these other areas start to get infected as well. So, Father, I thank you that you've led us and you continue to lead us in your word, that we can see uh, with clarity what your word says and to be able to apply it to our own life and to our own church, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen. The, the role of women in the church has been a very hotly debated topic, um, more so now than ever before. Uh, don't know if you understand or know this, but uh, our church, uh, North Park Baptist Church, is part of what is called the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, one of the things that the Southern Baptist Convention has been allowed uh, the churches to do, first and foremost, there is no hierarchy in the Southern Baptist Convention. As a matter of fact, every church is autonomous, meaning that we operate solely on how the Holy Spirit is leading us. So in the hierarchy of the Southern Baptist Convention, instead of it being as a triangle with the top people at the convention level telling the churches what to do, it operates the other way around. We have messengers that we send to a convention. As a matter of fact, and the Southern Baptist Convention only exists once a year when all the churches come together and they say, these are the things that we want to deal with within the church, within uh, within the uh, the con- uh, the the construct of the culture and the things that are going on within this world and how it's affecting our church. Many years ago, there was a lot of uh, push uh, against Disney. This is, oh, I'd say almost 30 years ago. And uh, we were known, the Southern Baptist Convention, as those that were boycotting Mickey Mouse. Now, they ridiculed, they laughed, and, you know, and they said, but however, if you look at what Disney's been doing recently, now you start to realize, oh, yeah, maybe we should keep our kids away from Disney, especially as all these things that they're starting to promote that was seen way, way back then. And it wasn't that we're promoting, we're, we're trying to promote not having fun. That's not what the churches were trying to say. But they came to a convention agreement and they saying, we want to keep our church as unpolluted as possible. And if the influence of Disney and the movies are starting to take place within the church, then we need to start looking at that. Now, that's what we suggest. That's what we want to do as a church. We want to agree on, on this. This is not what they're telling you what to do. They're just saying these are the things that we want to take place within the churches. And so out of these messengers that are sent to the this convention that happens once a year, it all comes down to our leaders and saying, this is how we want you to help us. And so they give us resources and they give us uh, leaders and they help us to develop all programs and ministries and su- such to be able to take care of the issues within the church. Because a small church and uh, regular churches against the culture is really not that powerful. But however, when you have a convention behind you, then it starts to unfold and, uh, and you have prayer, you have people uh, that are willing to come out and help. One of the recent issues that has happened recently is that many people know this. This is not gossip that I'm, I'm putting around, but um, that uh, there's certain churches, specifically Saddleback Church, that has started to ordain women into ministry. And the convention says, we've never had that within the church. We don't ordain women to ministry. We don't ordain women to be pastors. And so they asked the church to stop doing that. Not to, not, if you want to be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, at least come and give your word is what you want to do. Now, Saddleback Church has been, is a very influential church. It's a huge church uh, with a lot of money. They pour in a lot of money into the convention. They help out. Well, because of the what's what's gone on these last couple of years, they've asked Saddleback to step away and uh, not be a part of the convention because of the ordination of women. That was a very bold stance. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we were planning on doing was to step away from the Southern Baptist Convention because that started to happen within the churches. And we felt, in a sense, you know, I don't think we have much say over that. But once again, churches got together and they said, that's not biblical. 
And, and, but it's, it's being done in other denominations. It's being done throughout the, the nation, throughout the world. And women pastors are rising up. Many excuses, many reasons, and godly women that, you know, really mean well. However, that has never been the issue in the past, but it's really been debated just recently. And it's coming across even more so that those that do not want to ordain or have women as pastors are being made to be out as chauvinists, uh, old people of the dead letter, uh, you know, as, as um, I don't know, uh, all kinds of names I can, I can come up with that I won't. But uh, there is a there is a lot of struggle within that within the churches. And so we come to this portion of scripture, not because of what's going on in the culture, but because this is where we're at. And interestingly enough, the way the Holy Spirit has been operating within our church is every time that there's an issue in the culture, the Bible always speaks to it. And that's where we're at today. And so when Paul says <clears throat> that I desire that every man that in every place men should be should be praying. And it's not every man either, as I mentioned last week. I mean, there, there are a few men that are asked to come out and pray. Not every person, not every man is qualified or able to or is not comfortable standing in, in public and being able to do that. And regardless of the size of the church, I mean, we could be a small church or a huge church. It is nerve-wracking, right? I mean, you come up here and you stand and, and you're having to first and foremost stand before God and proclaim his word and, and, and be accountable to him and then to, to you. It is somewhat, and it still is for me as well. I mean, a lot of times I, I sit in the room and I pray, Lord, help me. I'm nervous. I'm whatever the case may be, because I'm standing before God and you. And, and, I, and I am given the responsibility to proclaim to you what the word of God says. So it is not something that I take arrogantly. I don't want to take it boastfully or pridefully saying that I can do this. I know I can, but it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that I'm able to do that. And uh, and, and so it's not just anyone that come up and pray and not any any person and so we're going to see that in here in just a little bit as well and so when he says likewise this is going back to verse eight i desire remember that word desire was a command but i command i ask i command he says that in verse nine likewise also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire and so the very first thing that paul says to them number one is he says i i desire that the attitude of prayer that the attitude of worship should be an attitude of modesty should be an attitude of modesty and it's interesting because the very when we started going over chapter one one of the things that Paul tells Timothy says, you know, I want you to stay there and uh, help and, and charge certain people. Once again, charge, command certain people not to teach any different doctrine. When you start teaching different doctrine, then anything goes. You know, I, I got a revelation from God and God told me that this is what we can do. And the moment you open up that door, it seems like everybody has a revelation. Everybody has a word from God. Everybody is doing whatever they want. And therefore, it's, it is no, it is no uh, I mean, it's, of course, the consequences of that is people are going to do what they want. And, and one of the things that I've seen in, uh, in, in, as we go on through this, in women being in, in leadership, uh, specifically being pastors of churches, most of the time they start off by saying, well, I believe, or well, I think, or I feel, or I sense, or God spoke to me. And those are I, me, self-centered statements but what does the word of god say well god told me but what does the word of god say if it aligns with scripture i don't need to hear what anybody else has to say because it aligns with scripture and if it doesn't align with scripture then i don't want it and when it doesn't align with scripture then it's been the the 
the responsibility of the culture to try to change the church to fit what the culture is saying. Now, next week when we talk about women pastors and we talk about that in depth, we're going to come to find out that a woman's role in, in the church is, is a high role, by the way, but the woman's role in the church is not something that the culture should shift and change the church. It is not because of the curse, as some people believe, because, well, she sinned, and, and because of that, God caught. No, it's because of creation, the way God created the created order. There is an order, and it's not because of culture, but it's because of creation. And again, that's just a teaser for next week. So he says here, an attitude of, of modesty. Likewise, women should, uh, uh, likewise, it goes back to that first verse. He says, I want, I desire I, that you adorn yourself. Cosmeo is the word that is used here. This is, this is the, the, where we get the word cosmetics. And he says, I want you to arrange yourself, to put in order, to make ready. As a matter of fact, the word cosmos, many times people use that as the word world, but the word cosmos really means uh, this created system of order. It's the opposite of chaos. Cosmos is order and how God created this world and it's put in order. And so Paul is using the same word here. He says, you know, I want you to women to put yourselves in order as you come to church, as you come to worship, uh, irrespectable. Once again, that's another word, cosmeo. He says cosmeo and cosmeo. He's using these two words, and they're both derived from that same term. And he says, I want you to put yourself together and, and look beautiful and look nice. There's certain things that, are, uh, that, are, that really just pull out the beauty of a woman. And one of those women that uh, is, is mentioned in scripture, and I'm going to read some scriptures from that, is in Proverbs chapter 31. And if you can turn with me there in Proverbs 31, and we'll be referring to Proverbs 31 quite a bit, so you might want to keep your finger there. In Proverbs 31, verse 10, some of you probably know this verse as the, uh, the, the noble woman or the wife of noble character or a description of a, wor a worthy woman or a virtuous wife uh, as the way... Uh, the King James Version puts it. I'm sorry, the New International Version puts it. But in, in Proverbs 31, verse 10, and it is, it is seen and looked at uh, for, in this portion of Scripture, uh, verse 10, the woman who fears the Lord. And now this is the description of Solomon, of what he understands in the wisdom that he has of a virtuous woman, a wife of noble character, a worthy woman, a wife uh, that is that is developing and has developed into the helpmate and, and into the role that God has given her. And he says this, and remember this, because I've said this already a few times. Remember, every time that the Bible speaks about a woman, the Bible always elevates a woman, never puts her down, never denigrates her, never makes her less than what she is. As a matter of fact, she's always lifted up in this position of noble character, of a, of a person that is raised up. And, Paul, and Solomon says this, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchants. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers the field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff 
and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out to her, reaches out her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the, in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done exceedingly, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is a description of a virtuous woman. Of, and there, she is called the Proverbs 31 woman. This is a goal that many women have, uh, well, first of all, have, have aspired to achieve. And yet there are a lot that have said, I hate that woman, you know, because I could never do that. It's not a matter of reaching the perfection. It's a matter of the heart, as we will see here in just a little bit. So an attitude of modesty, as Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 2.9, that a woman should adorn herself respectfully. It was a common practice in those days for women to braid their hair. Paul is not saying do not braid your hair. He's not saying there's a certain hairstyle that you should have when you come to worship. That's not what he's saying at all. But the braiding of the hair that he was referring to, as, as women would come, they would braid pearls and gold and jewelry into their hair, and they would sometimes stand up really high. And, and it was done in a way to attract attention to themselves, either uh, at a wedding or at a gala or something of that nature, which would seem appropriate at that time. But Paul is saying, you know, if you're going to dress up to come to church, he says, do it modestly. You don't need all the braided uh, gold and silver. You don't need all the pearls on your hair. You don't need all these things in church. Do your hair, please. I mean, that's what he said earlier. Arrange yourself cosmetically. Arrange yourself so that you can be presentable to the Lord. But all these things are not for worship. Because what Paul was trying to get across is when you walk in, when a woman walks in with her hair all braided up, people go, oh, wow. You know, and instead of looking up at God and saying, oh, wow, all of a sudden the attention is drawn to the woman or the person that is adorned in such way. And so the point was not that she couldn't dress up or braid her hair, but when you do so, do so with modesty. And he goes on to say that this braided hair was uh, the hairstyle with golds and pearls, and it was a way of flaunting their worth and the, flaunting their significance and the way of draw, drawing attention to themselves. And those were the things that were meant to draw attention from what God was doing and instead and, and bringing it upon themselves. Now, they either did this one of two ways. They either did this because they just really didn't know. They just came out from the the dregs of society. This is who they were. They, they were saved and were brought in and everybody was coming together and everybody was dressed and so they wanted to stand out. And so Paul had to lay it down and say, look, this is good for, as a matter of fact, the Old Testament says a lot of good things about dressing up. In, in Songs of Psalms, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, this is the husband talking to his wife. He says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewel. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. The king is telling his bride, yes, I, I want you to look presentable. I want you to come into my bedchamber and to look nice. As a matter of fact, in, in chapter 4, the same book, Song of Solomon, he says, you have captivated my heart 
my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. And so Solomon is wooing his wife and, and loving her because of the way she's dressed. And, and so this is not something that should be frowned upon. Women should dress nicely for their husbands. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 24, verse 53, it is said that the servant that was sent by Abraham to look for a wife for his son, Isaac, the servant brought out jewelry and silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah because he wanted her to look alluring to her husband. You see, this, this braided, this beauty, this, this adorning of a woman is, to, is meant to seduce her husband, not other men. It is meant to bring attention to her for her husband within the bedchamber, not within the worship center. And so the dressing of modesty, as Paul is trying to get across, yes, there's a place for it, but it's not church. You have all those things that your husband bought you and brought you and, and gave you, and, and you should use that to look presentable and uh, nice for your husband, for your spouse, for, your, for the, that, that one that you love. And that's where that is used at. You know, and on the other spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum, there are some churches, some groups say, you know, well, it says here you shouldn't braid your hair, so we don't want them braiding their hair. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, in First Peter chapter 3, in your outlines, it says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of gentle of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's sight is very precious. See, God is looking at the heart, always look at the heart. He doesn't look at the outer appearance. Of course, Paul says, adorn yourself uh, cosmetically. You know, put yourself in order before you come to church. And when Peter is saying, um, do not let your adorning be external, there are some groups that have said, well, it says here, don't be braiding your hair. You come with straight hair and that's it. Just straight hair, don't do anything to it. And uh, don't be putting on any jewelry. So they prohibit their women from wearing their hair in braids in straight and, and, and also with no jewelry and wearing gray, no color, nothing, because they don't want the outside to, uh, because this is what Peter is saying, that they don't want the outside to be distracting from worship. But Peter is saying exactly the same thing that Paul is saying. Paul is saying that is for a, a place where you, you uh, actually adorn yourself to your husband. Now, it's interesting because, and I don't know if I can even take it that far, but when, when Peter is saying the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry or clothing you wear, so are they prohibiting their women not to wear clothing? It, it, it just doesn't match up. They can only take part of it and not the other. And it's not a matter of putting on certain clothes or whatever the case may be, your hairdress. It's a matter of the heart. Once again, Peter really just focuses on that part. But let your adorning be of the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Just like the men, it is your heart that God is looking at. And if you have anger, and if you're causing dissension, God sees that. And in the same way, women, when they come in and trying to draw the attention, either intentionally or maybe not intended, but it is possibly true that some women do that, with the intention of drawing the attention of, uh, to themselves. But at this point in time, all Paul is saying is, is leave that for, there's a certain place for that. And there's also a certain place for this dark coloredness. It's at a funeral. It, you have a certain attire for funerals. You have a certain attire for banquets. You have a certain attire for uh, your, you, you and your husband. There's certain attire for church. 
Paul says you do it with modesty. Number two, you do it with an attitude of purity as well. You do it with an attitude of purity. This attitude of purity is with modesty, and, uh, but with, the, with, uh, with what is proper for women who profess godliness. And this godliness that Paul is talking about, he says, you profess to be a Christian. Well, great. Then what you professed in the inside, let it reflect on the outside. If you profess to, to love the Lord and you want to serve him and you want to worship him, then do so in such a way that it will honor him. And it's unfortunate that in this case, uh, as well as within the churches today, that men are so visual. Men are very visual. And uh, you can take a woman in a burqa, basically, and, and some men, because of their, their minds and, the, and how they think, they'll see that which is not able, you're not able to see. And so it doesn't mean that, you know, you keep the women at home, you keep them covered. It doesn't mean that. All it means is that Paul is saying, you don't want to add any more to what's already there. So when men come to worship, they come with a clean heart, with the, in, with the intent of worshiping God and him only, and loving one another. As Solomon had said to his wife, she's my sister. She's my bride. And, and she's the only one I want. And later on, we're going to find out that Paul is talking to the church that we should address each other as such, as a brother or a, a spiritual father or as a sister or as a spiritual mother. As a matter of fact, within the culture at that time, because like we're going to do today, we're going to take the Lord's table. And at the Lord's table, Jesus said, this is my body. Uh, this is my flesh. This is my blood. People on the outside were saying, these guys are cannibals. They're in there drinking blood and eating flesh. You know, they're in there doing that kind of, you know, and, and they're also committing incest. They, 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 they marry their sisters, you know, they marry their brothers. And so the world got it in a sense where, again, started twisting everything around. But when we look at each other in such a manner, in a, in a pure manner, in a modest manner, in an attitude of purity, in an attitude of modesty, we come to realize that, that there's more than just the outer appearance. It's actually the inner appearance. And the inner appearance should be reflected on the outside. And we don't want to deter from worship in any way possible. Going back to Proverbs 31.10, Solomon says, An excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. Oh, a pure wife, a wife that is committed to her husband, to her children, to the standard of the household. And, and Timothy says, uh, Paul says to Timothy later on in, uh, earlier, he said that we may lead in chapter one, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is con including all of us. And, and so a woman is, is seen by God from her heart, just like a man is seen by God by his own heart as well. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the inside. That's when he saw, that's what he saw when he saw Mary. God sent the angel, Gabriel, to Mary. And he says to her, the angel said, and he came to her, Mary, and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. A little bit later, he says, you have found favor in God's eye. There was something about this young woman. And it wasn't her outer appearance. There was something about this, out of all the maidens in the land at that time, there was something about this young woman. We don't know how old she was. Many probably guess she was young, 15, no more than 18. But there was something about this woman that she committed her life to Christ. She committed her life to God, and she was a servant of God. And she says, may the Lord do with me as he pleases. Because, uh, because of her heart, God saw that this was the person that God was going to be able to bring his son into the world. And, and over and over again in the Bible, as I said earlier, look at, look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 3. 
that the 12 that were following Jesus, they were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene. Mary from Magdalena, Mary from Magdalene, she was a woman that had seven spirits within her from whom seven demons had gone out. And she was so oppressed. She was filled with this pain and this anguish and this crying and whatever it was that she willingly let these spirits in. Evil spirits will not enter you without permission. They cannot give you, you cannot give them uh, just free access. You have to open yourself up and somehow, somewhere, we don't know exactly what took place in Mary's life, this Mary's life. But in this Mary's life, she opened herself up, spirits came in, there were seven of them, and they were tormenting her, and they were torching her, and she came to Jesus, Jesus healed her, and relieved her of that. Her life became a life of servanthood, as well as Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's housekeeper, house manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is interesting because to you and I, we would think, well, yeah, you know, you should name the women. Back then, women were not even looked upon. Their names were not even stated or said. But here, Luke is writing not only about what Jesus Christ was doing, not only about what the disciples were following in heaven, but he also wrote down the names of these women. I tell you, every time that women are talked about in the Bible, they're elevated to a place of prominence. Number three, Paul goes on to say an attitude of godly activity. So he says, but with what is proper for the woman who professes godliness with good works, what Paul says, an attitude of godly activity. You profess to be a Christian. You profess to be a lover of God. You profess to honor Jesus Christ and want to do, then, then do it with your hands. Then express it with your life, with what you do. What is proper for a woman who professes godliness. And not the gossip, not the, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this here in just another few chapters. Not the busybodiness of what some of these women were doing within the church. Paul goes up against that. He says, you know, you got to stop these women from doing this. you got to stop these women from talking and uh, get, getting across all this whatever's going on, this gossip and everything else that's happening within the church. This godliness is a godliness that only comes from God himself. He is the one that is initiated within the heart. He's, he's, he comes in, the Holy Spirit is, is the one that, that initiates this godliness within you. You cannot muster this thing up. You cannot do this on your own. It is the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, that gives you love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And out of that, out of that, the gift of prophecy, the gift of helps, the gift of mercy, the gift of leadership, the gift of whatever Holy, the, the Holy Spirit gives you, out of that, you use that spiritual gift to, for good works. You use it to edify the church. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12 that you have been given spiritual gifts for the edification of the church. For the building up of his body, is what he says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 as well. For the building up of the church, not for the building up of yourself, not for the building up of your business, not for the building up of your community, but for the building up of the church. And all these spiritual gifts that God has given you are to be employed within the church. And for women, as they, they work with this attitude of modesty, with this attitude of purity, they also work and they, they worship with this attitude of godly activity, as he says here. In Proverbs 31, 19 through 20, another example is what we read a little while ago. The writer says, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand and to the poor 
and reaches out her hands to the needy. A godly woman, a woman that is honoring God with modesty and purity, the godly activity she is willing to serve in whatever area that she can. Now, service is part of what we all do. But there's roles that God gives us, as we'll see next week. There's roles that God has placed upon the men and the women within the church, within the family, within the culture. And it's not up to the culture to determine what the women and men do. It is up to the Bible. It's up to Scripture. This is why many people are trying to get the Bible out of people's hands. This is why we don't have the Ten Commandments in the, in the Capitol or in the courthouses. This is why the Bible has been taken out of schools. Can you see that now? From the very beginning? Taking the Bible out of schools? And now that there is no standard of morality, now they can do pretty much anything they want. And it's, it's got to the point now in some states where if you don't affirm that your child is transgender, that that child can be taken away from you and placed in a safer environment, quote unquote, according to some of the laws, because that is the law of the land. When the Bible is, had been taken out of scripture, out of, the, out of schools and out of the, the courthouses, when the Bible started, there, there is no moral standard anymore. And now you make up your own moral standard laws and you make the laws up. And then once you make the laws up, then anybody that doesn't want to stand with them, you become an enemy of the state. For instance, I would be considered an enemy of the state because I don't agree with a lot of the laws that are being passed even now. And so I would have to pay the consequences for something of that nature. But when we are working with godly activity and uh, the woman is, is, and the men as well are working and trying to build their house and their home according to scripture, then yes, you're going to come across a lot of things that are not going to be able to benefit you. In uh, Romans chapter 16, in Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Now, Phoebe was a servant of the church of Sincrea. And he says to her that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Paul was in, uh, in, in uh, he, he was writing this letter and I believe he was in prison at this time. And when he wrote the, the letter to Rome, he, he wrote it, actually he was in Corinth. And when he wrote it from Corinth, he gave it to Phoebe to take to Rome. Now, the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that there was so much confidence and so much trust in this woman, Phoebe, that he says, I want you to take this scroll, this book that I just wrote to Rome, take it to them, and I'm going to write a letter of commendation that they may accept you well. And he says, I commend you. I, I command you. I, I'm asking you. I'm telling you to accept your sister, Phoebe. She's a servant of the church. She's worked hard. She's done well. She's ministered to me and the saints and everyone else. And, and she's a, a, a businesswoman, and she, she loves the Lord, and she loves the saints, and she's willing to give everything that she can to further the kingdom of God. Lydia was another person. Lydia was a person that was a worker of purple goods. She, she made garments out of purple. Purple was considered to be a, very, uh, a color of royalty and nobility, and it was a very expensive garment. The process of itself was putting it together, coming from fish and plants and everything else to mix this purple together. It was a costly process, and therefore, the garments were very expensive, and she made a living out of that. One day, Paul is preaching. In Acts chapter 16, you would see that she was sitting there listening to, to Paul preach, and the Bible says that God opened her heart. And she believed. She was a worshiper of God. She knew who God was. But now she had her worship and her focus on Jesus Christ because God was the one that opened her heart. 
She didn't open her heart. She didn't raise her hand. She didn't come forward. It was God that selected Lydia. And out of that, she became a, not only was she very profitable in the business that she did, she followed Paul around and says, come, stay with me. I want to I be hospitable to you and, and your patrons. Come and eat with me. I will take care of you guys. I will feed you. I will help in this missionary journey that you're in. And she, he, she was able to fund a lot of what Paul did. And so, again, the Bible always elevates women. And, and in this case, Phoebe, uh, in, in, Acts, in Romans chapter 16, also, he goes on to say that greet Prisca and Aquila. Aquila was another woman. This is a husband and wife team. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And greet Mary, who has worked hard for you also. And, and here's some more names that are coming out uh, out of Paul's pen, and, and he's writing it on paper, and people are looking at this, and, and he's elevating these women to these places of, of prominence. You know, and, and any time that a person is named in Scripture, you, you have to wonder, okay, what did they do to be able to? There were, there were hundreds of people that Paul was ministering to and ministered to him, yet he singled out these people to show, yes, they were fellow workers with us, and they continue to minister alongside of us because of their godly activity, because of all that she is doing and all that she's been able to do. These are the women that helped in the ministry of the gospel. And then number four, well, the next verse, let's look at this. She looks well to the ways of her husband and does not eat the bread of idleness. In other words, what Solomon is saying is that, you know, this, this virtuous woman, this woman of prominence in, in the Old Testament, she looks well of the ways of her household. She takes care of her house and she does not eat the bread of idleness. In other words, she's not lazy. She's not slothful. She's not on her phone looking at, you know, in TV and flipping soap operas. No, she's constantly trying to figure out a way on how to build things up within her home. Number four, an attitude of humility. An attitude of humility. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submiss submissiveness. Unfortunately, the quietly and all submiss submissiveness, well, I have a hard time saying that one. Submissiveness, the quietly with all submissiveness is what's emphasized more than anything else. And you come to any church in any place and any man, mo most men will emphasize the fact that she has to learn, this is how she has to learn. She's going to learn. She's got to be quiet. She's got to be submissive. But that's not the point here. Paul's emphasis was on let a woman learn. Now, that was a big deal at this time in culture because women were never taught. Women were taught to, not talked about or, or, or taught in any way. They, they were commanded to do this and do that, and, and they were never to be disciples. Most of the Pharisees would not even teach a woman. Jesus had women that were coming to him, and they were, they, were, uh, they, were, they were coming to him, and they were learning from him. In John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus meets, remember, you remember the woman in the well? The woman in the well, she was surprised that Jesus was even talking to her, let alone, let alone showing her and telling her what was to come. And he was talking to her. She was there because she was ostracized. She was, she was an outcast. Everyone would come in early in the morning when it was cool, and after they were gotten, you know, done talking and doing whatever they were doing there, as women, they fellowshiped and had a great time together. They would take their jars back. Then this woman came out in the heat of the day to pick up her jar of water for her home because people wouldn't talk to her. She was a sinful woman, considered to be a sinful woman. She comes, and Jesus is at the well. The disciples are in town. They're trying to gather supplies and necessities. And here's this woman, and Jesus comes. He's sitting at the well, and he says to her, give me something to drink. He says, what are you doing talking to me? Why are you talking to me? I'm just a woman. 
And, and not only that, I'm a Samaritan. You're supposed to, Jews hate Samaritans. And so the discussion started, and, and he, she asked the question, you know, uh, they say that we should be worshiping on this mountain, but you guys say you guys should be worshiping on that mountain. And Jesus says to her, you know, there's a time and an hour that is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is probably one of the most uh those verses that just that stick to you and you realize this is what we should be doing and we're doing it we're going to worship God in spirit and the truth and he taught this to a woman Jesus broke the mold Paul broke the mold the Bible breaks the mold when he's talking about learning let a woman learn allow her to learn she needs to learn she needs to know these things of God she, un- she needs to understand that as Peter said in first Peter verse uh, chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 he says like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation man woman child we all long we should long for that spiritual milk that milk once you receive it, no one has to tell you as a baby. You don't have to, your baby doesn't have to go to classes to learn how to drink milk. Your baby doesn't have to look at a video or it's instinct. It's in you. You want to survive and you latch on to your mom's uh, breast and you, you drink and you suckle of this milk because that is your life and it gives you life. And the bottle comes and and you go after it and you learn that you must eat. And as you grow, you continue to eat because that is how you were designed and created by God, our Father. A brand new baby in Christ will long for that spiritual milk. Whether it be a man or whether it be a woman, they will long for that spiritual milk. It's not something that you have to teach them, not something that you tell them to do. You help them. You know, you don't want them to put, put everything in their mouth. Well, no, 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 not that. That milk is kind of spoiled. You know, it's been sitting on the floor for a lot. You know, you, sometimes you take that bottle away from the child because sometimes they don't know any better. You might want to guide them in that, but they know what they need to do. Just like a brand new Christian, just like you. You know that you need spiritual milk. You read your Bible during the week. You pray and you ask God to feed you. And you come to church on Sundays to be, to be fed. And, and you, you, you be a, you're a part of the fellowship. You listen to podcasts and other sermons you, because you know that you need to be fed. That is the indication of a new believer. And just because you learn how to do that as a baby, I can tell that some of you didn't stop drinking or eating milk. <laughs> some of you have gone on and moved on to food and to, to, to meat, some frijoles and tortillas, right? Some of you are, you guys, some of you guys are eating more than what you should. <laughs> and that's how you should be spiritually as well. We should all just dive into it. By the way, for, for lunch today, my wife made up. Mm, uh, you guys are going to love this. At least I do. I mean, if you guys don't, that's okay. Leave it behind. I'll take it home. Uh, you're going to love today's meal. The point is that, once again, it's not just men that are to listen. And that's the way it was for the Pharisees. The Pharisees, and, and you know, this wasn't even an Old Testament teaching. In the Old Testament, when God t- spoke to the community, he told them in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Church, people, the people of God, you as fathers and mothers are to teach, but you got to learn this. You got to hear the Lord, your God, who is one. You got to hear the commandments that I'm teaching you so that you can teach your children. And it was the responsibility of men and women 
fathers and mothers. In Proverbs chapter 6, he says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Why? Because the mom was taught. She was taught. And she was to teach the children. Uh, and so there, there were so many things that were there for the women and, and how it turned from the Jewish uh, community that Jesus was in, where women were ostracized, they were put aside, they were, they were allowed in the synagogue, but they were allowed only on the outskirts. They weren't allowed inside with the men. They were, you guys can learn, but you can hear it from over there. Like, for instance, the breezeway. They would have a breezeway all the way around, and the windows would be open. And if they wanted to hear, they'd have to pay real close attention while they were taking care of the kids, while everything else was going on, the commotion going on around them. But the men got the premium of the teaching. And that wasn't the case. That, was, that shouldn't have been the case. In, in, uh, and, and so women, like men, they, they participated in the Jewish festivals and the religious rites, and they had inheritance rights. And both men and women were, were uh, also given certain specific uh, instructions that they needed to do. Uh, and, and, and they were also held accountable, just like in Genesis chapter 3. When they sinned, God held a woman accountable. He says to her, what is it that you have done? The woman says, well, the serpent deceived me, and so I ate. God hold her, held her accountable. So there's spiritual equality between the sexes that did not, however, it, just, it, didn't, get a, it didn't get rid of all the other uh, responsibilities. In, in the Old Testament, there were no queens. In the Old Testament, there were no prophets. Uh, there were women. I mean, there were some that spoke for God, but they declined to, to lead military attacks. And, and, but they also uh, were spokespeople of God, but they weren't actual priests or prophets. Uh, that led people in, in giving God's word. Uh, there were no Old Testament women that were writing. There were writers. Um, what else? Again, their responsibility in the role was not one of teaching. The responsibility was of one to be taught as well. In, in Galatians chapter three, here's what Paul says in Galatians three twenty eight. He says, "There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ." Now, a lot of people take this verse and they say, well, here it says that we're all one in Christ. So if a man can preach, then a woman can preach. Yeah, and that's, that's how they interpret that. You know, God didn't take away the Jew or the Greek standing. He didn't say, okay, now you guys are all Jews or now you guys are all Greek. As a matter of fact, he didn't take away the uh, slave or free. There was a distinction. There was Greeks and there were Jews. There were slaves and they were free, but they were all one under the banner of the gospel message that they were saved and they were equal in the kingdom of God. And each had their roles. The slave had his role. The, the master had his role. The Greek had his role. The Jews had his role. The men had their role. And the women had their role. Now, they take this verse and they run with it. And they say, here, we're all equal. So therefore, women can preach. Well, if that was the case, it says there's no male or female. Then that means every man can preach. And every man should be a pastor. And every man should be a leader. Every man should be a leader within the church. But not everybody can lead the church. Not everybody can, can teach the church. There's some that, that are not quite ready. And so there, once again, we'll, we'll discuss that even more so in the, coming, in the coming weeks, next week and on. So this oneness of Christ did not get rid of all these distinctions. Uh, it, it didn't. It made us one as Christians. And as I said earlier, there were rabbis that refused to teach women. And um, in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 39, it says here, it's in your outlines as well. This is, this, this is a, the, the home, the, the place where, where Jesus had come. And Lazarus lived there and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. And they, were, they, they asked Jesus to stop by. You know, we're going to make you a feast. And Martha was just busy. 
She was washing dishes. She was putting pants together. She was putting away things. And, and, and as she saw Mary, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, kind of like, what is wrong with my lazy sister? And so she got mad. And, and you know, she was just throwing pots and pans and slamming cupboards. And, and then Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. Well, ask my sister to help me. And Jesus said this, and, and she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teachings. And, she, and Jesus said to her, she has chosen the better thing. Jesus didn't tell her to get up. He didn't reprimand her. He didn't tell her to get up and go help the sister. He says, he says to Martha, this is where you should be. But you're busying yourself with this culture. The culture has taught you that you need to be busy and away from the teaching that I'm giving. And that's not what I'm telling you. You learn. And they ministered to Jesus. And they followed him at the resurrection. And at the resurrection, it was the women that he, he showed himself to first. Remember that? It was the women, the women and men that were involved in prayer at the early church. And Peter reminds the women that, uh, that the, the women are fellow heirs. In 1 Peter 3.7, he says, Likewise, husband, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker, weaker vessel. Again, most people focus on the weaker vessel, but Peter is saying, show honor to her. She is right there with you. She's saved right there with you. Jesus Christ elevated her. He has removed the, the bondage of sin, the bondage of Satan. He has removed that stigma that women have and has given her the same prominence as men as everyone else. She, too, needs to learn. And we're going to talk about that um, uh, again more so next week. But quietly with submissiveness. You, you know, and, and in, in the same way, when I'm teaching men, you know, I, I, I advise you to be quiet. I mean, stop interrupting me. <laughs> you know, don't interrupt me. Don't do that. And, and it, was, it was somewhat of a, not that you do, it was somewhat of a distraction at the church in Ephesus. Because women really felt this empowerment, and because they, they you know, they want to, I, I, I can say, hey, you know, hey, James, that's a nice haircut. And he'll say, yeah, cool. Thank you. That's it. Now, two women will say, hey, that's a beautiful haircut. Oh, yeah, where'd you get it? Oh, what did they do? And for, for about at least five or six minutes, they'll talk about the haircut because they're more visual. They're more uh, detailed. They, they want to get into the details of it. And, and, all, and, you know, for us, it's like, cool haircut. Yeah, thanks. That's it. No big deal. And so sometimes it's difficult to get across, you know, with our communication styles as women and husband and men, we have to learn their language. Women have to learn our language. At the same time, there's certain things that we can discuss and how we discuss things. But in, this, in the worship service, as things would come up, women would start talking. And, and uh, some of the men would say, shh, you got to be quiet. you got to listen. But, but what did he mean? What did he say? And that's why Paul says, you know what, if you want to know what the question is or you want to know what the answer is, discuss it with your husband after church. Go to the house, pray about it. You got an outline. Well, I don't know if they had outlines back then. But you have an outline. Take this home and read it over, and let's, let's talk about it. One of the things that I've been wanting to do, and I've done this here a couple of times, is after the service, while we have our time of fellowship, I want to invite you to ask me any questions that you might have concerning the message. What did that mean? Or why did you say that? Or why did you use that verse? Could you have used this verse instead? Uh, you know, ask any questions that you might have. You might have some questions, and I'm going to encourage you to write them down on your outline. A anything that you, you might, you know, put a circle around it and, or underline it. And if you want to kind of discuss it during our fellowship time, we can do that. I'll, I'll be more than willing to go over some of those uh, questions that you might have. You know, because, again, some men, you know, as well as women, they have questions. And they want to, uh, they, they want to just, uh, you know, open it up. 
I, I had an individual one time. Uh, I'll mention his name. His name was Richard. Uh, he's he's gone with the Lord now, you know. But but I would ask a rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is? You know, you I would ask a question. That says, well, what would you do if you were in that situation? And he'd stand up. Well, you know, the first thing I would do, and I'd say, okay, Richard, that was rhetorical. Oh, okay, and he'd sit down. <laughs> you know, if you have a write it down. We'll talk about it afterward. Uh, he'd raise his hand. Hey, I got a question. Write it down. We'll talk about it. He just didn't have any filters. Uh, and it's just not, this is not just for women, but it's for men as well. Write it down. And if you have a question, we can talk about it. And if it, and if it needs to, we can discuss it even further as we move on through the, through the other uh, week. But I just want to focus on this last part of the verse. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. Now, in our culture today, we, we've been pushed and we've been shoved and we've been forced to do this in a sense where, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like, well, of course, you know, we would do that. Let a woman learn. Well, yeah, she should learn. But you got to remember, in that time, that's not the way it was. And so when Paul is saying, let a woman learn, he's allowing her to learn. He's, he's, he's saying, let her be a part of what you guys are taking in. Jesus did this. All the other apostles did this. They're all one. We're all one. We have our roles, but we're all one under the cross. And I, I believe that it, it's very difficult. Uh, and again, going back to what we started off to say, it's difficult in this culture today because the culture seems to be changing the church. And every time that you give an inch, it just moves a little bit further and it moves a little bit further. But if we stick to what the Bible says, we shouldn't have any problems. If we understand what the Bible is telling us, the Bible is ta- talking to us and sharing with us on how the church should conduct itself. And this is why I believe that this letter to Timothy from Paul is very important for us today. Let me ask you to stand. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper and of the Lord's Table. Now, as I've said before, we have what's called open communion. In other words, if you committed your life to Christ... And you understand what this Lord's table is, then I want to ask you to participate. First First of all, there's some various teachings on what we call the Lord's table. It's called the Lord's Supper. Some people call it the Eucharist. Some people call it uh, communion. Uh, Eucharist means more of a body or the the uh, the, the actual bread turning into, into the body of Christ. Now, that teaching, that doctrine, which is called... A, Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, what some people teach in the church, that as you take the bread, that it actually transforms into the body of Christ. And so that the bread, the wafer itself that you're taking, is now actually the body of what Jesus Christ. And that, that's not what the Bible means. And they use the verse, well, this is my body, this is my blood. And so uh, because Jesus said, this is my body, then it turns into his literal flesh and blood. But he also said, I am the door and I am the vine. You know, he's not a door and he's not a vine. So it was symbolic. It's, very, it's a very important symbol. Another doctrine that is taught is uh, not only transubstantiation, it's consubstantiation. Consubstantiation is the, 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 the teaching that as you take this, it gives you more blessings. So you take this as often as you can because you want to receive more of a blessing from God. Once again, that's not the case here. This is merely 
a symbol. And I, I don't want to say merely in a sense of it's not important. It is a very important symbol. And I've used my wedding ring many times before. Putting it on or taking it off doesn't make me married or unmarried. It's a symbol. It's a very important symbol. It, it, it describes and it uh, also shows my devotion to my wife. And so it, it, is, it is symbolic in a sense that Jesus Christ said to do this in remembrance of him. And there are a lot of times that the Bible says, remember, remember, remember. And the reason the Bible says to remember is because, well, we forget. And so what we are to remember is this. Right before Jesus Christ died, he had what is called the Last Supper. And they had what was, what is, what was known, known today as well as back then as the Passover meal. The Passover meal was initiated in Egypt. After they came out, uh, before they came out, God was instructed Moses to tell the people to kill a one-year-old lamb without blemish, take the blood, sprinkle it over the, the posts of your doors. So when the angel of death, the last plague, and when the angel of death comes and strikes down every firstborn in the whole land, firstborn of people, of cattle, every firstborn will be struck down, except the angel will pass over the doorposts that are sprinkled with blood. You eat this lamb, you eat the bitter herbs, and there were certain, there were certain um, uh, things within the ingredients within the Passover meal that they were taking. And they would take that, and every one of them had, was symbolic as to what it was that it represented uh, their life and their suffering in Egypt. And so as the, as, the, as the angel came over and passed over the land, there was a lot of wailing because a lot of the people that didn't have the blood over the doorposts, mainly the Egyptians, their firstborn was slain. That's when Pharaoh said, finally, get out, everybody. And after that meal, after everything was eaten, they packed up and took off, and they were gone. And every year since then, God had instructed them to eat the Passover meal at the temple. And so it was first at the tabernacle and then at the temple. And once the temple was destroyed back in 70 AD, they have not been able to hold this Passover meal because they can't sacrifice the lamb. So Jewish people are waiting uh, to be able to build this temple because they desire to have this Passover meal again. It's not important for the Christians as much as it is for the Jewish people because that our Passover lamb has already come. It's Jesus Christ. He's already been slain, and, and everything that the Passover meal signifies, Jesus Christ fulfilled. So as I said last week, here uh, within, during, during our Palm Sunday, we do celebrate and uh, we partake of more than anything else, not celebrate, we partake of the Seder Supper only to show where this meal came from this lord's table came from the eucharist only to show how everything that the passover meal signified jesus christ he fulfilled now we don't want to be jewish we don't want to be legalistic we don't we, we want to celebrate and we want to celebrate it in such a way that shows who jesus christ is so we are going to take the lord's supper here this morning and then we're going to do it again during the seder meal at that time we'll i'll show you where that comes from where the, the blood, uh, where the bread of affliction comes from, the afikomen, the bread that was, was uh, hidden for the children to go out and find, why it was done. They don't even understand why they, they hid it. They don't even understand why there's this unity bag with three layers. They don't even understand what they're doing when they take that out. God had instructed them to break it. He, he, he they don't understand because when Jesus does here, he says when he took the bread and he broke it, it was the custom of the Seder meal to do so. And when he took the wine, it was the third cup, the third cup of redemption. And he says, okay, this, okay, the first cup was to start the, the supper. The second cup was just to, you know, celebrate a little bit more. This cup right here, the third cup, and this is a goblet, a big glass of wine. Everybody got a glass of wine. 
This, he says, is my blood. And every year that they took this meal, they, they participated in this meal, they never understood the bread and the blood until that very next day when Jesus Christ was, bar- was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And he paid for our sins. So during Seder, we'll meet in the fellowship hall. Please get here early. We start at 10. During Seder, we will sit down. We will be all dressed up. We'll be ready to go. The table's going to be uh, adorned really nice. We'll have meals. That we're, we already put the list out. If you want to participate, you can participate in that and uh, put down your name for what you'd like to bring. Uh, we're going to have lamb, actual lamb. Okay? And so if you like lamb, uh, great. If you've never tasted it before, many people, this is the first time they taste lamb <laughs> and they like it. Uh, I love lamb, and I'm going to be making the lamb myself, the lamb roast. And every and there will be a plate that has certain things on it, and every one of them signify. It's very symbolic and, and, and shows what it is that the, the Jewish people have done. Now, they are, there are Messianic Jews that believe in Jesus Christ that partake of the uh, Seder, the Passover. They still do that because they're Jewish people. And um, for the first century, they would do this over and over and over again. They would continue to take the Seder until you know the temple was destroyed and they couldn't do it anymore. But when Christians became, Jews became Christians, they continued on the process and they shared with it and the stories because it's a very powerful story, a, a way to show people this is where we come from and this is where we're going. Because when Jesus Christ put this together, and here's the only exception, he says, for you to take this meal today, in verse 23 of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. That's the optical And we'll, we'll go over that. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup, the cup of redemption. After supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So what Paul is saying People are taking this meal in a very ungodly way. So the meal is going to help you, the Seder that we're going to have, it's going to help you to see why it is that we do certain things and why it is that we ought to examine ourselves and how it is. It's more than just the bread and the juice. It's the symbolism behind it. Jesus just didn't one day arbitrarily take bread. and say, all right, this is my body. Oh, and by the way, let me have a glass of wine. And that's my, that's my blood. That's not what he did. However, that's how most people see it. Now, when you understand how it all fits together, then you, you can reflect. You can actually reflect and say, am I taking this in an unworthy manner? Have I examined myself? Am I sinning against the body? Do I have any animosity or anger toward anyone? I, am I just doing this out of habit? Am I just doing this because I want to get a blessing or because it's actually turning into the body of Jesus Christ? Why am I doing this? Well, you need to examine yourself before you partake of this portion. And uh, every Sunday or every time that you do this. We do this once a month. There are a lot of churches that do it every Sunday, once a week. In the, in the New Testament, they were doing it every day. 
But today, we're going to partake of this on the first Sunday of the month. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this time to be able to share. As you give us direction, as you help us to see more and more the life that Jesus Christ led and how he was murdered and buried and resurrected. And one day he'll be back. So as we partake of this today, help us to remember that, that one day we will eat this with you. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and go back to the back room and grab your...